Welcome back to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. And a special welcome to all our new listeners. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braun, and I work on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm thrilled that we have some exciting news coming up, so stay tuned for that. Now, we're used to hearing about sophisticated Russian cyber aggression. That was, of course, not Petya four years ago, which targeted Ukraine, but brought down a plethora of multinationals as well, including the pharmaceutical giant Merck, the shipping giant Maersk, and Mondelez, the snacking giant that makes Oreo cookies and Doritos. And more recently, there was the incredibly successful SolarWinds intrusion, which seems to have been an espionage operation, and ransomware attacks by Russian criminal gangs, including, of course, the one that brought down Colonial Pipeline in the spring. But now attention is beginning to focus on China as well, because phenomenally damaging cyber aggression is emerging from China. Last month, the US and a range of allies accused China of being behind the major attack on Microsoft this spring. And for the first time, NATO joined the US and, and those countries in attributing a cyber attack to a foreign country, namely that Microsoft attack, which was attributed to China. But it's dangerous to view cyber aggression simply based on the number of attacks that can be attributed to a particular government. China in particular engages in in cyber aggression that's much less obvious in nature, but equally damaging. We all know about the risks associated with Huawei and 5G, of course, but something that's received far less attention is how China inserts espionage capabilities into digital Silk Road infrastructure. What that means is that developing countries desperate to digitize risk being permanently spied on by China. Now, what can those countries do? The ones that are aware of the risk seem to be concluding that it's a price worth paying to participate in the digitizing global economy. And China conducts enormous espionage campaigns in cyberspace, even beyond the digital Silk Road. Yes, most countries buy in cyberspace, but China does an enormous amount of it. I'm thrilled to have Stefan Trevay here to help me understand the situation and what countries and companies can do about it. Stefan is the chief technology officer and co-founder of Recorded Future, the threat intelligence company whose findings are quoted by news media almost every day. He gained a PhD in computer science from Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden before founding Recorded Future with Christopher Alberg, or as one would say in Swedish, Alberg. Alberg now leads Recorded Future's US-based operations based in Massachusetts, while Stefan and other staff members are based in Sweden. Stefan also has a range of patents to his name that are too complicated to pronounce and uh, let alone explain. So I leave it that and say, welcome, Stefan. Thank you. Good to be here. I want to start with digital Silk Road infrastructure. So far, most of the debate around China and developing countries has been around debt traps, where countries end up handing over infrastructure to Chinese lenders because they can't repay the loans. And infrastructure such as ports, which has already, in fact, happened. But with digital separate infrastructure, they instead risk permanent espionage. So tell us what's happening. Well, essentially, I think you have to view this as part of China's overall strategy about how to dominate the world like the superpower they are. And one part of that, as you say, is making sure that they control infrastructure in strategic parts of the world. And as you said, they started out with Delta Road Initiative by doing physical things, harbors, roads, trains, and stuff like that. But it's also, of course, moved on to what they sometimes refer to as the digital Silk Road, where they are making sure that Chinese digital infrastructure is deployed worldwide. 
you know, 5G is, of course, the one which has had the most discussion, but it's also smart city infrastructure where they do monitoring of civilians, you know, facial, facial recognition and, and all kinds of other things as well. So it's really a way to both build an infrastructure for gathering data, but of course, in a potential crisis situation, they could also control that infrastructure most likely. And that's why we should be concerned about that infrastructure, not just on behalf of, of developing countries, but on our own behalf as well, because it is being used. That risk is inherent in digital cities. Now, can you tell us a little bit what's happening with digital cities and, and whether we are at the point of, of no return in exposing ourselves to that risk or do we have a chance to limit the risks still? It's, it's a great question. You can, of course, always limit risks. You know, the, the old saying goes that the only country in the world which is protected against cyber crimes is North Korea because they're essentially not connected to the rest of the world. But as soon as you connect yourself to the rest of the world, you are, of course, open for attacks. And of course, the advantage of digital infrastructure is that you don't have to be physically present to be able to influence or control it. And I think sometimes I think it's an oversimplification to say that it's the risk only would come with, you know, let's say buying your 5G base stations from Huawei or something like that. Because, of course, there is so much equipment out there which is manufactured in China, even though it's maybe sort of branded as, as European or American. So I think you really have. To assess the full risk, you really have to look at the whole supply chain. You know, solar winds was, of course, a great example of the, the risks yeah. with, with having supply chain, which can get infiltrated somewhere down the road. So just saying that the risk is to have a box branded Huawei standing in, in your cell tower, I think is a simplification. It's really the fact that we need to build the digital global infrastructure, and there's no way avoiding that you open up for risk. But of course, the more equipment you have which has you know ties let's say to potential bad places then the higher the risk is that that there are some backdoors or some way of, of unlocking or opening up infiltrating those so i think it's you know it's not a yes or no it's really a, a sliding scale here what risks you're willing to take and of course what benefits you reap from it and because these are not risks and this is not activity that results in, in one major attack but rather just constant snooping, it's easy to ignore it or not see it as an immediate or urgent threat. But yet, it, it is in accumulation. It is extremely damaging because nobody wants to have their entire information at risk of, of snooping by, by a hostile country or by another country. Do you think, is that, is that complacency both among companies and governments in, in regarding this risk of pervasive snooping by China or indeed other countries, or, or a, a sense of urgency that maybe they should look more closely at the infrastructure they, they use beyond just seeing whether it says Huawei on the box. I think, you know, my, my personal feeling is that there ha we have seen an increased awareness, maybe not yet sense of urgency, but definitely awareness. And of course, the, the 5G rollout globally has been a good test point for that because we have had legislations in, in several countries where they have forbidden Chinese vendors to even participate in the bidding. Sweden is one well-known example of that. But I think also the, the fact that you have, when you look at this, as you said, snooping sounds really innocent, but I think we need to think about all the different reasons for doing this. I mean, so one is, of course, traditional snooping or espionage, you know, trying to get information which could be either it could be strategic military information or it could just be getting access to new intellectual property 
patents, uh, software, whatever. But of course, part of the whole system which China is building out is, is also because they want to use this to, to defend the Chinese state. And there, of course, you get into all the other aspects which they are protecting themselves from, you know, the democracy activists in, in Hong Kong, religious groups in different parts of China and so on. And of course, infiltrating their friends abroad for them then is a, is a question as they see it of state security. Yeah. So they, there, are, there, are, there are multiple reasons for doing this for them, but they can po- probably sort of reuse a lot of the infrastructure for, for all these different purposes. That's a good point. And, and that's what makes it so different from espionage in the past. And as somebody who, who has focused a great deal or written a lot about the Stasi, it seems to me that the Stasi was child's play compared to this, because with the Stasi, you had to actually get had to ask people to give you information about others. With this, you don't have to ask anybody. You can just listen in. And that's why we, as, as ordinary citizens, should be concerned, because it's not just about snooping on government secrets or, or, or intellectual property, as you said, but getting, getting information from, from ordinary citizens, including us here in the West. Right. And it was kind of you know, good timing for us to be speaking today, because I think just yesterday the news came out that TikTok, for example, is now the world's most downloaded app. So that's, I think, the first time we've had a Chinese app being the most popular in the world, you know, surpassing Facebook, I think, at this time. Yeah. So it's another and, example of how, and, and, you know, you see similar things with, not the least, with Alipay and other Chinese payment systems, which are also now spreading across the world. You know, again, great source of information, but of course, also becoming a new way, a new critical infrastructure, which you could see if that was to be shut down in a point of crisis, it would be, could be quite harmful. Exactly. So there is both the, the issue of, of snooping while the infrastructure is working fine, and then the risk of critical components simply being made unavailable during a crisis. So a double exposure. Now, if you, you've, you've been obviously watching this area now since the 1980s, long before any of these capabilities existed. How would you compare China's capabilities today or China's activities today with those of, of Russia and, and maybe compared also to, to some of our Western countries? Is there a difference in sophistication and, and level of assertion, let's say? Well, good question. I think I mean, in one way, you could say that China is sort of following the, the standard playbook of a superpower, right? You know, they, they do what they like, and they are not even afraid to... I think one difference is that they are not even afraid to talk about what they're doing. They, you know, they are very transparent in what their goals are, you know, these things about how much intellectual property should come out of China, which, of course, means that they will need to get as much in as they can to build on. So in that sense, they are, they are quite transparent. Maybe the, the difference, if you compare to previous cases, if you like, like Russia, whatever is, of course, one one is, of course, that society is so different today. I mean, globalization, everything has, has changed a lot. But also the way in which I think even even though you could claim that in, in Russia in the old days, you know, the state controlled the companies and so on. But the way China works today, when they have the cybersecurity laws in China, which requires all companies in China to actually support government, report anything they have, give out information, if it could be interesting for state security. It's a, it's a huge machinery, which is really also goes all the way up to the Communist Party in the end, you know, controlling it through a lot of different mechanisms. You know, you have the, of course, the civilian part, the Ministry of State Security, you have the, the PLA with the military side, but uh, they are, of course, all connected to the same point in the end. 
So it's a huge apparatus. I mean, it's it's an unprecedented scale in, in that sense. And the fact that they can control the companies, you know, was one that's one big difference if you compare to the US, for example. Indeed, it is. Now, one thing I, I wanted to ask about that that is a bit different, but obviously connected to these capabilities, is the increasing use of GPS jamming. And that used to be something that people used maybe to, to just to annoy others. I remember somebody, a private citizen, once ended up shutting down the US airport because he left a GPS jamming device in, in the trunk of his car and forgot about it. But what we have seen recently is commercial vessels, for example, in the Black Sea, but not just commercial vessels, Navy vessels from various NATO countries being spotted online tracking websites as being somewhere completely different from where they really are. And there was, for example, a Royal Navy ship that was found on one on, on these websites as, as being in contested waters when it was actually docked, I think it was at Odessa. So this, again, is a, is a different form of cyber aggression where somebody, we don't know who, is messing with GPS signals to indicate that ships are somewhere else where they are, both maybe to confuse them, but also to confuse the public. What do we make of that? First of all, I think we should clarify that there are at least three different mechanisms here. I mean, one, as you said, is GPS jamming, where you're just disturbing the signal so that the GPS receiver doesn't know where it is. In, in one sense, that's the, the least malicious one, because then you will notice that the GPS isn't working. And then you have the GPS spoofing part, you know, where you set up a fake satellite signal, essentially, to trick the GPS into believing that it's somewhere else. There was an interesting example a couple of years ago where the Iranians probably, I should say, managed to spoof a U.S. missile, you know, to misguide it, to make it go somewhere where, where it wasn't intended to go. So, so that's the second use. The one you're referring to, the recent examples, there, I think there have been both cases which could be GPS spoofing or something, some mechanism like that in play. But we've also seen, as you said, the, the reporting of the location. And that goes through the AIS system. And to me, it's not clear whether, from the reporting I read, it's not clear whether the ship actually had the right position or not on board, or if there was actually someone messing with the AIS infrastructure so that it was being reported as being in another location. Of course, those, those are two different things. And you could, of course, you know, both are serious. Of course, if you mess up the GPS signals, then there can be accidents and things can run ashore and, and whatnot. If you're just messing with the AIS system, then that could potentially be, you know, to sort of escalate a crisis or to give false, false information, which could have, I don't know, probably political reasons for doing that as well, to make someone believe that the Navy is going somewhere where they are not. But I have actually not seen in that particular case if someone has made a full study of why it was reported, you know, where in the chain from the GPS satellites through the ship to the AIS system the incident occurred. So just to explain briefly, Stefan, if you could, AIS. So the AIS is this infrastructure which is built out, you know, with transceivers. So ships and airplanes and other vessels across the globe have these transceivers, you know, so they get the GPS location from the GPS satellites, and then they transmit their position through these transceivers. So there could potentially be someone who's messing with that infrastructure, you know, faking those, not bothering to fake the GPS signals, but just essentially interfering with the AIS communications. Yeah. Super interesting idea to look into how that was actually done. Yes. And we should explain that the most recent case actually involved findings from an environmental organization, two environmental organizations that track maritime activity to, to find out when fishing vessels are in places that they shouldn't be. And 
these organizations found naval vessels in, in locations where that were completely surprising and then established that those vessels were not in those locations at all, but that the signals had been messed with so that those vessels, those Navy ships showed up as being in, in the wrong locations. I should mention there's also the last couple of weeks, there's been some other reports which you could see for airplanes on flight radar 24. There were some cases where a US military aircraft looks like it was heading towards Iran. You know, it could have been that they were doing a sort of, you know, one of these test flights they do to, to activate the defense systems there. But again, of course, if, if these systems give false information, you could easily see how that could lead to, to incidents or an escalation of tensions in the region. Absolutely. And I, I hate to be alarmist, but an accidental conflict. And this all, again, based on our digitized modern society. The Cold War was dangerous enough without this, all this digitization. So, so Stefan, since you are somebody who has been watching this, the dilemma that we have today, it seems to me, is that we can keep digitizing and expose our societies and, and ourselves to ever more threats and not just threats, but disruptions. Well, or is there a point where we say now we're done digitizing? It's the convenience that digitalization brings is not worth the risk of disruption. Where are we? First of all, I think digitization is sort of a one-way street. I don't think there is any good turning back or scaling back. That's not just going to happen. But Maybe we should stop being so naive and realize that we need to put much, much more security and more precautions in place in many cases. It was kind of interesting, you know, some five years ago, I had a chance to meet with Vint Cerf, one of the fathers of the internet, as he's called. And he, he was asked a question there in the seminar, you know, if there was anything he regretted, if he went back to day one and, and could redo things, what would he have done differently? And his immediate answer was that, well, we probably should have thought more about security. But of course, the internet grew out, out of a small community where everyone who was on the internet knew each other by first name. So, so the internet started out, you know, it was built in, in one way. It's a great design because it's, it lived up to being robust. That was the key design criterion for the internet was that it was going to be robust. So it could survive a nuclear strike and whatnot. And in one way, you can, of course, say that it's been a tremendous success the way it's been able to scale up over these decades to, to the size it is today. On the other hand, you know, it was built on trust and, Today, clearly, you cannot trust anything. There are lots of places in that infrastructure where there are problems. You know, the DNS, the naming system of the Internet is a good example, which has been used in various attacks. There is more secure ways today to build these mechanisms, but it's not widely deployed, not by far as widely deployed as it should be. So I think we do have to sort of step, not, not go back, but at least take two steps back and, and look into how can we build more secure systems. And it all sort of boils down to basic things, you know, of, of having secure ways of authentication and authorization, giving what rights do you give to different systems and so on. So I, I think, you know, if we were just to continue naively allowing anything to talk to anything and, and so on, it is the path to disaster. So I think that's what I'm hoping is that it's not going to be like, you know, like some people are talking about the divide today that we, we will not have one internet, but, you know, Russia will have one and China one and the Western world one. I'm hoping that it doesn't have to go that far. You know, there are still such big benefits of having global connectivity. But clearly, we need to be more cautious and, and more insightful in, in how we protect these systems because they are far too valuable to be handed in sort of pretty sloppy way that they still are in many ways. 
the road to disaster, that's a good point to end on after having discussed snooping through the digital road infrastructure, snooping on, on ordinary citizens in the West, jamming of GPS signals, and we should say it's, it's not just GPS, it's, it's all satellite signals. GPS is the American system and much else. So with that stuff, thank you very much. And I'll keep checking in on you on the road to disaster, which will hopefully be better in the meantime. <laughs> nice talking to you. As always, please feel free to subscribe and comment on Apple and Spotify and give us a good rating too, if you're so inclined. Many thanks as ever to our producers, Olivia Leslie and Leila Hernandez. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.